Good afternoon, everybody, or good evening, wherever you are. Um, we have put together a, an event because today, is, well, not today, but this year, is the 50th anniversary of the publication of the Mediterranean Caper. So, Dirk, you know more about this than I am. You want to give us a little background? Well, uh, it's actually the second book that uh, that my father wrote. So, uh -huh. so I was wrong already. Well, but, <laughs> but you were right because it was the first one that was published. So it was the second manuscript. Uh, his first one uh, got no traction. It was called Pacific Vortex. Uh, but after he had uh, become more successful, they went back and published it later on. So uh, it hit the rejection pile initially. And so he went on to a second one, Mediterranean Caper. And uh, that was his first novel that was published. Uh, it was only published in paperback, 1973. I think they published about 5,000 copies of it. But he was very excited because it was nominated for the Edgar Allan Poe Award for Best Mystery Thriller in 1973. And I remember he went back to New York City with my mother, all excited. And he didn't win, but it was <laughs> a nice feather in his cap for, for his first published novel. And, uh, of course, it introduced the, the ongoing characters of, of Dirk Pitt and Al Giardino uh, in the story. And, uh, here That's we are. Very cool. Actually, they had, uh, I'm not sure if they still do, but they had a category for best paperback original, as well as for best first novel. So, you know, it might have, I don't know which one it qualified for, but um, there has subsequently been a small, well, you, Dirk, you tell us, because May Day is the title of the British edition. Right, yeah, we just, we were talking earlier. Um, in England, they published it under the title May Day. And I don't know the story behind that, why they changed uh, from the Mediterranean Caper, but May Day is probably a cooler name. But uh, that certainly probably does cause some confusion to, to readers. They pick up a book called May Day they haven't seen before, which in fact is, is met the Mediterranean Caper. And this was a hardcover edition that was published later by uh, James Cahill, but uh, I believe the original in, in England was also in paperback. Right. And so we were cleaning house. We actually went for our storage locker, which we definitely need to do more often. <laughs> we found some copies of May Day that Clive had signed back in 2004. So Dirk is holding one and we have a few left. And I will also say that we found a few copies of Built to Thrill, which was, Dirk, am I right that that was the first book on the car collection? Yes, it was. So there were two books, but that was the original one. Uh, uh coffee table book featuring photos of, of Clive's car collection in Colorado. Uh, and most of the cars are pre-war. We, we sort of ended up splitting splitting the books pre-war versus post-war uh, collection because he's got a lot of 1930s cars and then quite a few from the 40s and 50s. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that was the first and uh, features probably some of the nicest cars that, uh, that he had in his collection. They are wonderful. Fortunately, he signed all of our copies there, so we're in great shape. If I remember right, that was a very long-term project. Clive wanted to do it, and um, because it was expensive, because of all the color printing and you know all the red photography, the whole bit, uh, there was a lot of pushback in terms of you know publishing it. And I don't think that they published an enormous number of copies, if I recall that correctly. I, I couldn't tell you what the numbers are, but yeah, it wasn't a wide release, I think, because uh, uh, Putnam obviously it wasn't wasn't geared towards, I think, coffee table books in terms of of, of our, you know, the typical uh, work. So I think they were there. Like you said, there was some resistance to putting it out, but I think it ended up doing very well. And, yeah. Well, it's like a, you know, ghost in the past to suddenly find books signed by Clive. Now I am holding, I went to my personal library and I'm holding a copy of Blackwind signed by Dirk and by Clive. And why is that, Dirk? 
because that was the first book that I co-wrote with my father. And uh, that was probably, what, 2004, I guess, or so. So uh, It's been 20 years? It has been, almost, yep. I'm looking, you know, you're right. It is says copyright 2004. So actually, this is the 20th anniversary year then for Black Wind and for Dirk writing with his dad. And I remember well, um, Graham, I think, I'm trying to remember, I don't think you'd been writing with Clive then, but I remember that we went out to dinner after Trojan Odyssey came out. And he said to me that he really loved going on publishing his adventures, but they'd gotten bigger and bigger. And he didn't think because he was aging and he could do all the heavy lifting himself anymore and he wondered how it would go if he co-wrote with somebody and I think Dirk weren't you the or was it Paul had Paul already started writing I'm, uh, I'm Paul, I guess. yeah Paul and actually Craig Durgo had started I think the first uh with the organ files okay and he wrote two of those and then uh and then Paul came in on the uh, pneuma files but uh, yeah, my memory's a little foggy on on the, the chronology there, but uh, I think they were both going about that time. So we're all gathered here today because, let's see, Mike Madden in the cap over there, Graham Brown doing that thing, and Jack Jabril down on the bottom. This is the <laughs> team that is carrying the Cussler verse, as we call it, forward. Uh, missing from this is um, um, the... Well, Dirk, who's missing? Let's let you talk about that. Uh, Fargo series. So we're we're one short right now in terms of, of the Fargo. And uh, we're working towards that. Uh, we're a little behind schedule. We have the Serpent's Eye was, was in progress. And uh, we don't have a publication date yet on that. So we had a little slippage and we're working through that. But uh, hopefully we'll have the Fargo's back in action here uh, before too much longer. So coming up, there will probably be three books sometimes in 2024, if you guys all behave. <laughs> we'll find out. Right. So, let's see. How should we do this, Dirk? Do you want to, you're, you're now sort of the whole center of the thing. So uh, I guess, you know, we, part of it is we're talking about Dirk Pitt as well as, as the Mediterranean caper. And I guess I just wanted to throw out to, to the other guys, uh, maybe how Dirk Pitt has influenced uh, the protagonist in their stories. And maybe how Clive uh, personally has as well. Now that's a tougher question for Mike, obviously, but uh, uh, for for Jack and Graham, uh, you know, how do you see Dirk Pitt's influence and Kurt Austin and Isaac Bell and or Clive's personal influence on those characters as you guys write them today? Oh boy, I mean, for me, and this is something that Graham and I have talked about, is how towards the end of the story. Dirk Pitt is always the smartest guy in the room. He's figured something out that, that the reader had a clues to, but could, didn't put together, but Pitt did. And like reading Mediterranean Caper, you know, he's in the sea cave, the bad guys have him right where they want him. And he turns the tables entirely because he knew everything going on you know, way, way in advance. And that was such a clever trick that Clive pulled. And did it again, again masterfully in Raise the Titanic. That I was inspired, you know, for like my Philip Mercer character, and again for uh, the uh, my organ files. That you know the the main character is just that just that tiny bit smarter than everybody else, and but not arrogant about it. So that it turns the reader off, but the reader's like, oh, that guy is so cool. You know that that. 
pit has stuck with me ever since reading Raise the Titanic in eighth grade. And I remember after reading that, I begged my parents to take me to a, a used bookstore. And I picked up uh, Iceberg <clears throat> and uh, Mediterranean Keeper right away. Loved them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that is one of the things that definitely, I think, grabs everybody in these books and in, um, you know, in fiction in general. If with Dirk Pitt, you always got this sense that uh, he was he was one step ahead of things, even when he knew he hadn't figured it all out yet. And that as a reader, that was always like, OK, I want to see if I can figure out what he's figuring out. Uh, because you knew he was giving you knew Dirk, you knew Clive was giving you the clues through Dirk and you want just like Sherlock Holmes or whatever you kind of wanted to put it together before uh, before the hero um, and that definitely had stuck with me all through my writing especially working uh, on the Numa files you know the hero at least the way I see it the way it seems to be written in in these books you know when it comes to the the finale or 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 the climax of the story we never want to see the hero overpower the villain we never want to see the hero just pull the gun and shoot the villain the hero always has to outsmart the villain yeah. and if it doesn't end that way it's it's not a very satisfying conclusion um so you know that that definitely is is something that i think stays with anybody that reads these books and anybody that works on them is you're always trying to figure out a way to create a villain that's powerful and intelligent but Dirk or Kurt or 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 Juan Cabrillo or Isaac Bell they have to actually be one step even smarter yeah um and, and I want to say this since we're kind of talking about Mediterranean caper specifically because it's interesting because I've I've read it three I think three times I read it a long time ago uh, but well before I ever met Clive, well before I even started writing, you know, and I was like, what a great adventure, like made me want to go to like Greece and, and <laughs> wander around the Mediterranean and meet beautiful women on the beach and all that stuff. And, and just have a great, you know, a great adventure. Where you don't know what's happening next. Uh, <clears throat> and the next time I read it was shortly after I started working with Clive. And the interesting thing for me was the second time that I read it, I suddenly couldn't see Dirk Pitt as anybody else but Clive Cussler. <laughs> like once you got to know Clive and then you read Dirk and the lines that he's delivering and the way he's reacting to things, it's just, you're just, at least for me, I'm just seeing Clive uh, in, in all of those scenes, um, you know, and then uh, rereading parts of it again before we, we set up this Zoom. Uh, I was also struck by, you know, there's this sort of, I think Stephen King said, writing is like time travel. And he writes at some point, and you might read it years later, and that's the only moment that the entire process is complete. Uh, and picking this book up again and reading it for the first time in the last, I think, probably 12, 13 years, since whenever I first started working with Clive, uh, there was a little bit of a time travel feeling. I was kind of reminded of that moment of like, I'm working with Clive Cussler, you know, I gotta, I'm gonna have to go through all these books again. I have to like feel this, this emotion for these characters again. And it brings you right back. Uh, and even though all of our older books sometimes feel a little bit connected to their time period and maybe a little bit dated, I think that's what's good about it. 
because suddenly you're back for me, I'm back when I first working with Clive, but I'm also back when I first started reading adventure books. And even though you probably couldn't write a book like uh, Mediterranean Caper today because people would want it to be bigger and longer and more complex. I love that these books are still out there and they're part of the canon. And I, I tend to go back and read those more than I read, you know, reread any of the new ones. Um, so that's kind of how it works for me. I thought it was interesting when you talk about uh, seeing seeing Clive there because I certainly I, I wrestle with that all the time not wrestling with it but it's it's just kind of inspiration for me working on the books because uh, I see so much of my father in Pitt and mm -hmm. say the the dialogue kind of the the attitude and and just some of the behavior uh, it's tough to kind of draw the line between the fictional character and, and the old man there as as he was in his younger days. And uh, so it's it's kind of a fun and fun inspiration, I guess, in that regard to to think back about his his persona and his character and how that kind of influenced uh, uh, Pitt and and the other protagonists that he created as well. Now, Mike, stepping into this without having actually written a book with Clive, how how has it been for you? Well, I regret never having been able to work with Clive. Um, First of all, on behalf of the group, Clive is certainly um, a veteran, and I've got a 91-year-old father-in-law who, uh, former combat wounded, combat decorated Marine, happy Veterans Day to him and all the veterans, certainly Amen. many, many, many fans uh, of, this, of all the series, so thank you all for your service, certainly. Um, but yeah, I wish I'd worked with Clive, but I feel like I kind of know him. I, I did read somewhere where he said he consciously built the dirt character or, or sorry, the, the Dirk Pitt character off of himself, but he didn't have to say that. It's so clear. I mean, I, I sort of know him by reading Dirk Pitt. There's just no question. And I think, you know, the classic writers are the ones that stay with us and resonate with us. They're the ones that, you know, have a true and authentic voice and that sense of not like literary style, but I, I know who this man is because of the way he writes and what he says and what's important to him. Uh, I get the jokes. I, I can just imagine uh, what Clive must have been like. Um, uh, I think Mediterranean Caper, it just makes me laugh. The, the Al Giordino and, and Dirk interactions just are just hilarious. It's a, it was a cop, uh, buddy cop movie before those things were popular. Um, there's, no, there's no question in my mind that um, Juan Cabrillo is cut from the same cloth of, as Dirk. I, I definitely appreciate what um, Graham was saying before. Um, Juan's superpower, like Dirk's, um, is not his fists or the fact that he can, you know, do these other things like flying planes or whatever. Um, it's it's his it's his intellect, you know. It, and it's absolutely true that uh, the hero of a story can't have overwhelming power. You know, it's always a story of of power and status. And if the hero has way more power than everybody else, then he's not really heroic. In fact, he can almost seem cruel. Um, it's the villains who have too much power and are cruel. Uh, and so in the case of Mediterranean Caper, Dirk or, can be shot and he can be unarmed, but he still has his wits. And that's his superpower. And that's how you know he's going to win. And that certainly comes through in the, for Juan Cabrillo in the Organ Files series as well. All right, let me say, um, along these lines, Dirk and I are going to be doing an event, a live event at six o'clock at the Poison Pen for the new Dirk Pit, which is called the Corsican Shadow. 
And there's a moment in which I was really concerned that Dirk was going to blow up the Eiffel Tower. But instead, <laughs> instead, they all end up going into the Seine, the River Seine, in a truck. And anybody but Dirk Pitt and Al Giardino would have drowned. But because they're experienced divers and all the rest of it, you know, they don't display necessarily superhero powers, but they have enough superhero power that they get out of the truck and swim up to the surface and don't actually die. So, I mean, you do have to give them some extraordinary capabilities, don't you, Dirk, in order to make the book work? Well, you know, he was clever because he obviously wanted to build the stories around the sea and, and have a hero that was capable underwater. Uh, but then at the same time, he made him a, a retired major in the Air Force. So he had pilot capabilities. He can fly planes, he can fly helicopters, and he can fly submersibles or pilot submersibles and boats and everything else. So, uh, and then of course, he's a Marine engineer, I guess, by background. So uh, I think he did a, a smart job in terms of, of kind of building in these, these skills and capabilities into his background that enables him to do these things. Uh, you know, driving a truck full of explosives into the sand. I don't know if anybody's got that background, but uh, you have to give them a little uh, a little impetus there to, to get things like that done. But, so uh, Clive started really writing on his own. I never forget that he came from advertising. Um, and in fact, his most famous jingle was one that sticks in my head to this day because it was such a, I'm pretty sure it was Clive that wrote it. Wasn't it the Ajax cleanser commercial? I can still sing it. Ajax, the floating cleanser, floats the dirt right down the drain. When I was a kid, that played on the radio and everything all the time. <laughs> it's always kind of in the back of my head when I think about Clive. And Ajax is kind of perfect if you think about it, right? If you think about the Greek character, um, it's almost like it foreshadows Dirk Pitt. Well, it was the White Knight, too, wasn't there in the ads at, at one point? That's that's the ads I recall as a kid in the 60s was the, the White Knight on the horse went charging in with the the cleanser to clean the house, I guess, so. Uh, Maybe, but I've always thought that, you know, coming from the advertising background had certainly had an influence on Clive's style, how, you know, how he wrote and how, how he approached um, both in terms of, you know, sentence structure and pace and all those things, because in advertising, you, you have very little time to get your message across. Yeah, and, and look at the visuals, I think, like a Mediterranean caper. I mean, he opens with his crazy scene of, of Pitt and Giardino flying in a Catalina PBY over Greece and, and coming to save the day when a, a World War I albatross attacks uh, attacks the the, uh, the Air Force base there on uh, uh, on Greece. So, you know, he, he had that kind of visual sense uh, to grab the reader right off the bat with something maybe a little outlandish even. And uh, I think he carried that through in, in, in all of his stories. I think too he knew how to sell ideas. Yeah. You know, these outrageous, you know, raise the Titanic. I bought it hook, line, and sinker. It was just so well presented in the story that oh, they, they have to do this. Okay, I like it. You're right. You know, he he could pitch something that that seems crazy. I mean, uh, uh forget the story right now, but he had a, a sea serpent in one story, right? Fighting a uh Battling, a, was it a whale? I think you know that was believable. And one of the shockwave, stories, shockwave. Thank you. And then he had a, a moon base on one of the other ones. Uh, Cyclops. Cyclops. Thank you, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, on the face of it, they seem outlandish. But but the way he he melded it into the story, uh, like you say, you, you bought it hook, line, and sinker. It, it just was carried a realism to it that uh, 
uh, I think a lot of people can pull off. Now, Graham, you mentioned, you know, being inspired to go, I think it was you, inspired to go to Greece. But one of you just said reading the Mediterranean caper makes you want uh, It sounded like a good idea after reading the Mediterranean caper. <laughs> it seemed like a place to go for adventures. <laughs> so it seemed to me, you know, having spent all these years listening to Clive's fans, that that the landscape of the book, you know, where where the adventure takes you has always been a big plus for readers, something that really interests them. So what kind of a challenge is that for all of you in trying to find locations that are not necessarily repetitive of other, I know, Graham, you ran into, I think it was you, were you going to write a book set in Egypt, but Dirk had already preempted you or somebody had already preempted you? That's happened a couple of times. I mean, there was one time uh, I, I suggested a, a plot and, and Clive was like, well, Dirk's kind of already doing that. And then there was another time I was like, in this book, I want to blow up this hotel in Singapore. It's the one with the three towers and the big pool on the top. Marina and, Sands. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Jack had already blown it up in the previous book. So <laughs> like, what if they've just finished rebuilding it? <laughs> and it just gets blown up again and the general manager just quits and Clive thought that would be funny but he was like no let's find something else so yeah it's sometimes you can't even find something that we haven't blown up yet I mean I think Dirk's taken out the Panama Canal right sounds like the Eiffel Tower almost went down this time uh really worried there's not a lot of monuments we haven't no landmarks yeah <laughs> <laughs> the landmark survival may be a crucial element in reading the books right you know well Will it make it? So, Mike, you're new to this. Have you had to read the whole canon in order to um, step up and, and write your series? Well, certainly of the organ files, for sure. I haven't caught up on all the other ones yet. Um, just read Jack's latest book. Um, well done, sir. Thank you very much. Very that very much. Um, I love historical fiction anyway, so that was, that was a lot of fun. Uh, set in 1915, quite a year. I think one of the best villain deaths I've ever come up with. That was thanks to Dirk's idea. <laughs> that was just gruesome. So, yeah. So I guess Jack has uh, found a way out of this conundrum. Since he's 1915, he can do anything and beat us all to it. Yeah, he's time-traveled himself already back to a previous era. Yeah. The thanks. one standard I'm holding myself to on that is I can't have something that's not in the history books or within reason. You know, so I can't blow up the Eiffel Tower in 1915, which is still standing today. Yeah, that makes sense. So it makes it a little tougher. Well, but what if it was secretly rebuilt and no one knew it? <laughs> there you go. There you You're go. welcome. That's a freebie. <laughs> <laughs> You're the best, Mike. Virtual reality could enter into things at some point. That'd be sort of an interesting thing. Um, what did I just read that said that they were something was using virtual reality to help people deal with some kind of maybe oh for hoarding that was it that they're using virtual so if you have a hoarder and you put them in virtual reality then they can get rid of all the you know the magazine piles and the, whatever it is and then they can see what their residence would look like if it were decluttered and the ideas then you could transfer to mm -hmm. real life take off the vcr and take it all away and then you could put the virtual thing back on and and still enjoy your clutter and I, I was trying to figure <laughs> out what, what you could do with that you know, as adventure writers. Wouldn't that be interesting if you could find a way to use that? I wonder if in the future we're going to have more interaction that novels will eventually merge into the virtual reality world. I mean, some of the great storytelling is already taking place there, but 
Um, I don't think it's been, I don't think the potential has been tapped yet at all. Well, grab sort of our current expert on artificial intelligence. Uh. But yeah, I mean, it's, you could see that the books would probably be able at some point to be instantly converted into some sort of uh, virtual program. And uh, I mean, we've got audio books, so I guess that would be the next step, right? Uh, you're experiencing the book rather than reading it, perhaps. I mean, if they could do that, that would actually be, that would be an outstanding add-on. I would, I would, all my favorite books, I would, I would definitely love to see and sense in 3D. But I will say this. It'll be different than what we've imagined in our minds. Right. And it, it'll be like, it'll be like that thing where you go back to like your old house and it's changed or something like that. And something your old school and it just doesn't seem right anymore. So maybe I don't want to do that. Maybe only for new books, but it, you know, you're probably right. There probably will be a AI will read the book and just create like a 3d program and you can watch it like a movie, which that's just crazy. We, we might get there soon. Who knows? Oh, and not to be cliched about it, but you know, everyone, I think we almost all agree the movie's never as good as the book because our imaginations are better than, than the movie. So I would, yeah, I think we'd hate to lose the reading experience and I'm not a medical professional, but I've seen like Dr. Amon's brain scans of things and you probably have too, but the, the brain is far more active when it reads than when it sits and experiences something like a movie. Um, oh, totally. Yeah, there's yeah. something there's something deeply soulful, maybe even spiritual, in the act of reading, as opposed to just sort of passively receiving someone else's imagination and, and vision. So, because I mean, you know, Graham, you hit on it. Is again, when you read a book, it's yours. It's your interpretation. You know, the character looks somewhat like the way it was written, but you fill in all the details. Yeah, it's like with like my character Philip Mercer. All you know, he's got dark hair and gray eyes, and he's above average height. Everything else is in your mind. Yeah, and the movie in your mind could be different than the movie in my mind, different than the movie in Dirk's or or Mike's yep. or Barbara's or everybody's, you know, got a little bit of a different vision because it's, they carry their own experiences with them. And that's kind of what it makes it, you know, unique. Everybody's got a unique read on the same book, which is kind of cool. So, guys, it's the truth universally acknowledged that every reader reads a different book because every reader brings their own as you yep. said, their own, you know, experience, their own, whatever it is. And for authors, sometimes I found over the years, it's really unnerving when somebody asks a question, which is very real to them about the book. And the author sits there and goes, I, did I really say that? Or, <laughs> you know, I mean, you can really see authors confounded <clears throat> sometimes by a reader's uh, perception of what the book is. It, it, it could be really fun. So speaking of movies, now that Clive is not here to just absolutely go crazy, um, Dirk, are you at all? You know, you're you're stepped into Clive's role here as managing all this. Do you see anything going to happen in the movie world, or is Clive's ban on that sacrosanct? Uh, no, I mean we'd certainly be be happy to you know for for Apple or somebody to come in and and you know do a bang up job or something, but. Uh, we're just, you know, treading, treading cautiously on that front. Uh, you know, obviously things are in turmoil, I think, in Hollywood right now anyway, between the strikes and, and some of the financial difficulties. So uh, I don't see anything in the in the near future happening on that front. But, uh, uh, you know, I think we'd all like to see, uh, uh, you know, quality <clears throat> interpretation of, of the books, all of the series, you know, in some format or another. So uh, I would hope at some point in the future that that, that does happen. Uh, 
but uh, at the moment, I, I have nothing to <laughs> can't report on anything in the works at the moment. So have you taken on a role as um, kind of the, you know, not, I don't want to say editorial role, but you're managing, in fact, the, the Custlerverse right now? I do, but, you know, it's it's a pretty easy job working with, uh, with the caliber of these guys here. I mean, uh, you couldn't ask for a... <laughs> for a, a, a better, more qualified and more talented group of, of co-writers. So uh, they're doing all Thanks, the work. Thanks, boss. <laughs> they are doing well. I have a question for Jack. Jack, you have you have written in two different um, Kustlerverse universes. So mm -hmm. was it easier for you to, you know, transition from one to another or how did that work for you? Oh boy. Stepping in the organ files is really easy for me coming from the Philip Mercer. Um, Going to the Isaac Bell, I'd never done historic fiction before, so that was tricky. But for me, it's really been driven by the plots I came up with. When I had the opportunity to write the uh, prequel to Raise the Titanic, you know, it, it didn't matter to me how difficult it was going to be to do that. I had to write that book. Um, but at the time, I also told Clive, I am not a mystery writer. I'm a thriller writer. And so these my stories made less mystery the way uh, Justin Scott had done them and more the adventure. So that made it easier for me. Um, you wanna call Pat and see if we have any questions from the Facebook audience. I'm not sure where he disappeared to. All right, I'm gonna step away because I don't right. either. While you do that, um, have any of you, I mean, right now we know what you're writing. You know, we know you're writing Numa and we know you're writing Isaac Bell and we know that you're writing uh, the Oregon Files. How would any of you feel about introducing a whole new, a whole new line, or abandoning one and writing another one? Would that be something of interest? I had approached Clive years ago about kind of a dirt pit guy. He's wealthy. He has his own uh, like oceanographic institute with a research ship, things like that. But at the dawn of World War II, no. so you can have the Japanese as villains, you can have Germans as villains. Um, at the time, like technology, you know, some new stuff was coming, the early jets, early helicopters, things like that. And he said, Jack, good idea. Go write that. <laughs> and what happened to it? Where is it? That was it. I never did it. Oh, you disobeyed a direct order? I, I did. I did. <laughs> it's too bad. That sounds like a good book. So, I, I stole uh, a couple ideas from it that made it into the organ files. Dirk, the question I asked was, you know, at some point, would would one of the writers want to write some different, start a new series or something, or maybe put an older one to rest? How do you all feel about that? You know, one one thing might be fun is is uh, the precursors. Um, ah. If we do a, a, a prequel, maybe to to one of the series or two. <clears throat> I mean, origin stories are always good. They're big in Hollywood. Yeah. You know, maybe someone would want to see how Dirk Pitt became Dirk Pitt, you know, or Kurt Austin or, you know, young Juan Cabrillo or something like that. The CIA days. Yeah. You mean, that? Wow. Those, those kind of things would be pretty cool. Um, then you'd all be writing historical fiction, <laughs> which is great. What happened to Pat? Did he decide that we were... Didn't want him. <laughs> I think we didn't have any real questions here. As far oh, as okay. All right. Well, anybody, anything that anybody. I, I had a question. Oh, uh, sorry. For Dirk. Did your dad ever have a Maybach Zeppelin? No, he did not. And so that's that's one car that's that's absent from the collection. You know, the other one, 
that I, I would have preferred that he also had in the collection was the uh, 427 AC Cobra that Pitt drove in uh, uh, a couple of the early books. And uh, that would be one I would rather have, but uh, but no <coughs> collection either, so. I think that was Deep Six. I think, I think you're right. I think it, it had an appearance in, in another yeah. one as well, but I think, yeah, Deep Six, so. Uh, so yeah, we're missing a couple of the cars early on that that he put in there. But uh, well, you got a few blank spots in the museum, <laughs> <laughs> a few parking areas that are unoccupied. Right. Well, there's there's not a lot of Mybox Zeppelins that hit the market, I think. <laughs> That's true too. What would one of those go for? Any idea? Ah, uh, I don't. They're so they're so unusual. You know, I, I think I was talking to Graham about uh, there's a Hindenburg Museum, or I'm sorry, it's uh, the Zeppelin Museum. Zeppelin, yeah. Friedrichstadt in Germany. Yeah. Right. And they've got uh, they've got a car, they've got a Zeppelin in the lobby there, which is a nice big sedan, but you just don't see them. I mean, they're very, very rare automobiles. They just, you don't see them on the market much. So the few that are around, I think, are probably in museums, but uh, um, yeah, cool car for its day. Well, I wish Clive were with us to enjoy the 50th anniversary of the Mediterranean right. caper. We kept him a long time. Um, and you know, it's wonderful. I think that you all are able to continue writing. Um, you know, great for you, but also great for fans who love all this and you know didn't want to see it disappear. Dirk and I were talking earlier today about there's there's a big thing of military thrillers and so forth going on at the moment, but not so many just adventure. You know, adventure writing. And I really think of of Clive. That was the the gift that he you know that he gave us was that he could write adventure. You know, I go back to like. Mm -hmm. H. Ryder Haggard and King Solomon's Mines and, you know, books like that, that were, <clears throat> I just think, you know, they, they were, they actually worked very well in the 19th century when people were still exploring the world, you know, you could imagine King Solomon's Mines, for example, nobody found it. It's kind of harder today to figure that out. But do you think that, you know, it's the adventure that is what really draws readers in? I mean, there's technical stuff in your books and you've had to adopt to modern weaponry and all the rest of it, but at the heart of it, is it the adventure? I would say yes. Um, I remember talking to the conference with Clive and his big inspiration was Alistair McLean. That he had these characters, they, he didn't really, he didn't build his characters the way, but he had exotic locales some interesting action set pieces that weren't just combat. You know, they had to, you know, <clears throat> climb a cliff and swim a river and then just explore a cave. He he really liked that kind of stuff. And that's that's kind of where he went with the Dirk Pitt series. No, I think adventure is really key to, to the formula. And and part of adventure to me is also fun. Um, I, I laugh in Clive Custler books. It's it's they're having a good time. They may have okay. Villains are about to destroy the world, no question, but they're having a good time. There's no question they're having a good time. And uh, that sense of humor and that sparkle just comes out. And Dirk, I don't mean to put you on the on the spot, but if we're asking questions of Dirk, I've got one. Um, I've heard the story and maybe you have the, a different take on it, but can you remind people who don't know the story how your dad first got his first and only agent, Peter Lampeck, and how he got his books published? That, that to me is a classic Clive Custler story. <laughs> Everything you know about the man is in that story. 
So uh, Clive had completed, I think he had completed both manuscripts. I think he had already written uh, Pacific Vortex, which he had tried to pitch and uh, hadn't gone anywhere. And then he, I think he may have written uh, the Mediterranean Caper. I think he had that as well too, but he didn't have representation. And I think he, he came to realize that he needed to have an agent. And back in 1966 or so, I think the, the William Morris agency was one of the the better known uh, literary agencies in New York, uh, but he had no contacts. He had he was working in advertising, and uh, so using his deviousness, <laughs> <laughs> um, he he wrote a letter. He, he came up with the name of an agent named Peter Lampack, and and he wrote a letter to him, and uh, he said, uh, uh, "Dear Peter." Uh, you know, I, I, I don't deal, I, I deal primarily with, with uh, film works, but I ran across this, this, this young aspiring author I thought you might like to, to look at. Uh, he's got two manuscripts uh, or you should take a look at. Uh, and, and he signed it, Charles Winthrop. Uh, well, Charles Winthrop didn't exist. Um, uh, Clive used to live on the Win Winthrop Boulevard, I think, in Pasadena when he was a kid or something. Uh, but he had used, and he used his father's return address. Uh, and so he sent this phony letter to Peter Lampack, uh, soliciting his own work under under the name Charles <laughs> Peter Lampack received the letter, and and he looked at the uh, the manuscripts, and he didn't like the first one, but he did thought the second one had potential, and agreed to represent Clive. So, <laughs> years went by before uh, before Clive. Uh, could confess up and he, he met with Peter in New York and they went out to dinner and uh, he, he finally fessed up to, to his, uh, his act, <laughs> mischievous deed. And uh, he said, Peter, Peter broke out laughing. He said, uh, I received this letter that Charles Winthrop and I thought it was some guy I met at a party when I had too much to drink. So he assumed <laughs> it was legitimate. <laughs> and, uh, and proceeded to look at the work. So uh, it all ended well for everybody. And uh, obviously, but, but you know, a sign of, of Clive's creativity, I guess, and in maybe a more devious manner. Uh, that, uh, that, that is your dad in a nutshell. It really is. It's in a nutshell. It's, it's Juan Cabrillo in a nutshell. Yeah, it's a, I just love that story. Well, Clive had a wonderful sense of humor, um, you know, and I think um, I think it takes a sense of humor to actually do something like that, not just shoot spot, but actual sense of humor, because if it backfired, he'd have to laugh, right, rather than cry. See how that worked? Well, gentlemen, it's really been a pleasure, and I told, uh, Dirk has one, but we did, a, I think it was his 80th birthday party? Yeah, we gave him a birthday party at the Arizona Biltmore, and in order to do it well, people, the family and all, gave us a whole lot of photos of Clive. And so we created this whole photo montage. And I still have it. And I was going to, I know I've given one to Dirk and his sisters, but I'm not sure I've given one to you guys. But it's really fun to take the little stick and plug it in and watch Clive and recognize how much of what he wrote was stuff that he really did do. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So... Um, I'll I'll get that to you. I'm sorry, I forgot. Thanks, Barbara. Um, but I'm I'm really pleased that we have it. And you know, there's Clive. 
leading his best life and then turning it into fiction. I mean, it's just such a, a wonderful thing, 50 years, and we're still excited about it. What does that say? Great. Well, I think done right. <laughs> yeah. I know. Well, anyway, it's lovely to see you guys. Um, I look forward to seeing you in person. I look forward to seeing Dirk in an hour and 15 minutes to talk about the Corsican Shadow. And those of you watching it, we will be streaming that event. So if you're not able to come to the store, you can carry on and watch the streaming version. So anyway, um, thank you all very much. Lovely to see you. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Bye. Barbara, thank you so much. Thank yep. you, Barbara. Thanks, Thanks for it. having us. Nice to see you guys. Good luck tonight, Dirk. Thank yeah. you. Give him hell, man. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.